Why don't we welcome him? Well, thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Matt, and thank you for sharing the important parts of my biography with my family. And one of it's a lie, though, I realized. I've got to update it. I have two teenage kids, because one just turned 20 in the past month. And I don't feel that old when I get older, but when your kid turns 20, you start to feel old. And he got, he got his G2 this week, and he's sending me pictures of everywhere he goes in, in mom's car now. And so it's quite a fun time. But I'm so glad to be with you all here today at Calvary. I really appreciate Matt and Angela and their family and, uh, and just your church. Um, I ha this is the first time I think I've preached here, but I've been in this building. You've opened it uh, during the week for pastors' meetings and, uh, and I'm sure lots of events as well, and I appreciate that. And uh, I want to share just a bit about Feb Central, uh, who I work with. Our office is out of Cambridge, but I travel all over the place. I was, I've been in the office about 10 or 12 times in the past year and a half because of the pandemic, of course, and really been out a lot uh, when we're able to be uh, reaching and connecting with pastors and churches. But let me just show you some pictures. Have we got some cool pictures we can show on the slides there? Uh, we are... Uh, 46,000 or so people are in a Feb Central church on a Sunday morning. We might have to recount those numbers after the pandemic, but it's something like that pre-pandemic. With 277 churches across Ontario and English Quebec, and that's just one of our churches about an hour away in Cornwall. Uh, let's take a look at some of these pictures. I'd like to show you pictures of churches because hopefully you're in your church here and you don't get to see all these other ones unless you see some pictures. This is West Highland Church in Hamilton, where uh, my family are members and we attend at that church. That's one of our churches in Hamilton. Let's take a look at some others. Greenfield Park Baptist Church in Montreal. Uh, I was there a couple of years ago. Wonderful multicultural congregation, English speaking, on the South Shore. And they're looking for a pastor, by the way, right now. So you can pray. Uh, and if you know of anyone, uh, I help with that in Feb Central. So send them my way. Uh, Wilmer Heights Baptist in Toronto. I preached there a few years ago, and this was a fun, Pastor Matt, this was a fun church. Uh, this is the first fellowship church where they asked people to move into the aisles during the worship so there'd be more room to uh, dance during the worship. They're, a, they're an urban church and are reaching some in, in need in the city, and that's Dr. Ty, an exciting pastor, and their deacon there, he's, that was Neil the deacon in the middle of the communion table. He, was, he, he did the announcements before I got up to preach, and he preached the announcements better than I could preach a sermon. And, and it left me kind of in trouble. How do you follow that? Neil, he was good. This guy can preach the announcements. So that's a wonderful, wonderful church, Wilmer Heights in Toronto. Uh, West Park Church in London. This is actually one of the congregations that meets at West Park Church. They have four congregations who meet at the same time. They have an English congregation, that's the largest congregation. They have a Chinese congregation, that's the picture that you see there before you. They have a uh, Hispanic congregation, and they have an Arabic congregation. And I went and I visited them all on the same Sunday morning. I just popped my head in and saw them all. And it was fascinating to see the different worship styles of the different cultures, uh, and yet all of them worshiping the Lord together. And their kids would all gather together in the same children's ministry, which was very cool as well. Uh, let's take a look. I think there's one more. Flamborough Baptist Church in Waterdown, uh, not far from where I live, where Pastor Bill Thornton is the pastor. And that just gives you a flavor of Feb Central churches that we are a part of together. Uh, I think there's a picture of our office. It's a really exciting picture of an office uh, in, uh, in Cambridge. That, again, I don't go there that often. I'll be there on Tuesday, Lord willing. But uh, Heritage Seminary is there, and uh, so appreciate the work of Heritage, and we're partners with them. 
Uh, let's take a look at what we do as Feb Central. There's three main activities we're involved in. The first thing we do is we help churches to plant churches. And we continue to see churches planted during COVID. Uh, last Sunday, I was actually, and it wasn't a new church plant, it's one that's been going a little while, but I was in Mississauga and visiting uh, Pastor Grant Melvin, and they had been praying that God would provide them a place to, to meet, because they, they've been going for a while, but they'd lost their sight, they'd met in the park or something in the summer, and God provided them a location at an amazing community center on the west side of Mississauga, and they actually had local officials there with their, it was like, they called it a grand opening, I guess it was a grand reopening, but whatever it was, it was amazing that God provided for them in that. And so we enable churches to plant churches. That's a key thing we do at Feb Central. Second thing we do is we enable churches to develop leaders. That's a picture of Grandview Church in Kitchener where they were doing small group leaders training. And I was there that day a couple of years ago to uh, help them with that. And uh, we think it is vital that we be developing leaders. And, and even as just I, I look around today, I have to wonder, perhaps God is raising you up to be a leader in this church perhaps even to be a leader in some kind of ministry in the future. And if God ever puts that call in your life, I encourage you to talk to Pastor Matt or Pastor Kenny and, and follow after wherever he takes you. It's, it's amazing where God might take you. We need more leaders, and we work to help churches develop leaders. The third thing we do is that we help churches to maximize church health. This is a picture. Hey, that's Matt in that picture. I didn't set this up, by the way. Uh, this is just, I actually, Matt, I show this picture when I travel all around. So you're, you're very famous in Feb Central churches. And uh, Matt is, was leading the Pastors Association. He's uh, been, our, been the moderator, we called it in the past, of the uh, Ottawa Valley Association. And Matt was leading that day. And I was there teaching about church revitalization. And so that just gives you an overview of the things we do in Feb Central. And this last picture, I like this last picture. This is Pastor Jim DeMarsh at Milton Bible Church, where my wife and, uh, and my kids, we attended there before we moved to Hamilton. And I took this picture, and I, I like the, the greater things in the background. And you probably sang the song, Greater Things Are Yet to Come. Have you sang that song uh, here? It's, and I just love the thought that there are greater things that God is doing, even greater than what we've seen. I believe that with all my heart. And I want to say that together, a, a we, it's, I'm not Feb Central, I, I work with the office, but together we are Feb Central, all of us in these churches together. So God bless you and thank you for your support uh, for Feb Central and uh, for allowing me to share just a bit about our churches and what we're part of together. Now I got a sermon too, I got a sermon. I got a, I got a sermon from Exodus and I've got uh, some stats for you. I don't know if you've heard, but 75.3% of statistics are made up. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that, that was a joke. But let's take a look at a stat, that, some stats that will help us get into the message today. There was a poll done by a group called CROP in uh, 2017, and they were trying to find out what Canadians believe about God. And they found that 65% of Canadians say they believe in God. Now, when you see surveys like this, I find that number, it's often higher in the past, I've seen it higher, but they found 65%. But then they asked some interesting questions about what people believe about God, like what God they believe in, and what God is like, in particular, is what they were asking. And they found that 22% believe in God as taught by their religion, so by their church or mosque or whatever religious group they're part of. 37% say they believe in God in my own way. And so, in other words, their own kind of constructed image, they just pick and choose what they think God is like, and that's what God is like. And, 
And I find when people do that, God coincidentally looks a lot like them. It's amazing how <laughs> he seems to kind of reflect all the things they think are important. Uh, 21% believe in God as a force which we are all a part. Now, that's an interesting one. Um, maybe, maybe you've heard there were some movies done uh, over the past half century called Star Wars movies. You, heard, you hear about that? And uh, there's a force, of course, you have. There's a force in Star Wars. And 21% of Canadians believe God is similar to the force. You know, may the force be with you. That, that's fascinating. Uh, and then 20% believe that life is a purely biological phenomenon. So they're really atheistic in their thinking. I think I'm, I'm paraphrasing D.A. Carson. It's that people, they don't know which God they don't believe in anymore, uh, if, if you follow me, as you see from these, these stats. The question we want to ask today and address is, what is God really like? Because it's not just that Canadians have drifted away from God. They, even when they believe in God, they, they don't really know what God is like. And it's almost as if he's too far out there somewhere if he's there at all, and how can we know? Uh, I, I'm just going to do a little, uh, little something here. Maybe we can ask, when we don't know something, what do we do? We ask Siri, right? Hey, Siri, tell me about God. In monotheistic thought, God is conceived of as the supreme being, creator, and principal object of faith. Shall I continue? No. <laughs> That's one way to find out about God, but it may not be the best way. The best way we can find out about God is take a look in his word and see what it teaches us. And we are going to look in the book of Exodus today. It's one of my favorite books of the Bible. And learn what God is really like. Because the book of Exodus, I believe a key reason it was written was to explain what God is like. There's a passage early on in Exodus 5 verse 2 where Moses is before Pharaoh. And do, do you remember we used to sing a song about this in Sunday school? Do you know the song? Pharaoh, Pharaoh. Ooh, baby, let my people go. <laughs> you know, that, you got to do the <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and we would, we would sing about that. And Moses saying, let my people go. And Pharaoh, this is what Pharaoh says in Exodus 5, 2. He says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. It's fascinating to me. He's asking to me the question that it, it's the same question people have today when you look at what they think about God. And it's actually a core question for us. It's the core question of the book of Exodus. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? <laughs> well, the book of Exodus answers this in many ways. And we won't go through all of them, but I'm going to highlight a few of them. In Exodus 3, Moses meets God at the burning bush, and God tells him, he's the great I am. I am who I am. And there's so much to be looked at in that passage. In Exodus 7 through 12, there's the ten plagues, and he reveals himself, the Lord does, as a God of great power. Remember again in the book of Exodus, they don't have all the background we do. They've got the story up till Genesis and then the beginning of Exodus. That's all they got. They don't know about David. They don't know that the Exodus hasn't happened yet. They don't know about the prophets. They certainly don't know about Jesus in the New Testament. They don't really know all there is to know about what God is like. He's a God of great power. In those ten plagues, God reveals his power. Um, one of the plagues is a plague of darkness. Do you remember that one? 
It's a plague of darkness. Now, do you remember, uh, maybe any Egyptologists in the room, do you remember who the great god of the Egyptians was, so-called god? Somebody said it. Ra. Ra. What is Ra the god of? The sun. When a new god shows up and sends a plague of total darkness and you can't see your head and hand in front of your head, it's so dark. What does that say about your sun god? It says he stinks, doesn't it? It says he's not very good, not very strong. There's a new sheriff in town is what it says. He's a god of great power. He is a God of salvation, we see in the book of Exodus, as God leads the people using Moses to lead them out of Egypt, cross the Red Sea on dry land. He's a God who saves them from slavery. He's a God of laws. In Exodus 20, we see the Ten Commandments are given, those amazing commandments that still are so vital today. He's a God of holiness. Um, if ever you read the book of Exodus, you'll find that about a third of it is architectural plans for building a tent of worship called the tabernacle. You might be tempted to skip past those verses, but you'll get to Leviticus if you do that, so you might want uh, <laughs> to just keep reading. It's, and why does God spend a third of the book on really the diagram for how to build that? Uh, it's because it's all about his holiness, and it's so important that we know how to approach him properly, and this is before Christ, and they have to do all this elaborate ritual in order to come to God and be with God, because God wants to be with them. But the passage we're going to look at today is in Exodus 33 and 34, and by the way, there's notes that were in your, uh, in your program this morning, and you can uh, follow along with them if you're not already. And in Exodus 33, uh, take a look there, it's also again in the notes. It's after the scene in the book of Exodus where they've, they've had the golden calf. And they have, uh, they've been worshiping this golden calf despite all that God has done for them and revealed himself to them all, despite all that. And Moses is up on the mountain and he's pleading with God to go with them. He's afraid God isn't going to go with them. And he, he's said, we're, we're nothing if you don't go with us. We, what will set us apart from the peoples of the earth if you don't go with us? And the Lord says, I will go with you, but Moses, it's like he doesn't believe him. He's not sure it's really going to happen because the people have messed up pretty big. And Moses says in Exodus 33, 17, uh, or in 33, 18, please show me your glory. What an interesting question. Please show me your glory. It's like he wants proof. He wants God to show his glory to know that God truly will go with them. Now, what would you expect God to answer to that question? What would you expect God to show you if you said, please show me your glory? What would you expect? Maybe a, a, a good lights show, at least. Uh, you know, oh, hallelujah chorus, that kind of thing. But God says this. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. That's almost not the answer I was looking for. <laughs> when we think about the glory of God, a couple passages in the New Testament come to mind. One is in the book of John, in the first chapter, when the Apostle John writes, we have seen his glory, talking about Jesus. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory. Well, what did they see? I think primarily what they saw is what God was like living in human form on this earth. They saw how he lived, how he walked, how he ate, how he 
interacted. They saw the goodness, the holiness of God, and that was the glory. Certainly they saw the transfiguration. They did see some lights. But the bulk of what they saw was Jesus living a perfect life as a man. And that was the glory of God. In Romans 3, there's a famous verse that we share that says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory yeah, of God. Is our problem that we don't have halos around our heads and don't shine like the old paintings? Well, no, I don't think that's our problem. Our problem is we fall short of God's goodness, his holy character. That's the glory we fall short of. So when Moses said, please show me your glory, and God said, I'm going to show you my goodness and declare my name, he was actually answering exactly the way he needed to. Because the glory of God is primarily rooted in his holy character and his great name. Now, the name of the Lord, that's, that's the title of the message. We, we sing about the name of the Lord uh, all the time. We sang about it we'll, this morning. We'll sing about it in future weeks. And I know growing up in church, I heard that all the time, and I thought it was just kind of like a, kind of a fancy way of saying God, the name of the Lord. It's just kind of a fancy way of saying God. But as we look in this passage, we're going to find there's something deep. Um, names in the Bible are often very important. They had deeper meaning than we take our names for. My name is Tim, or my, my parents named me Timothy. And Timotheus, it's Greek, it means honoring God. And that's very interesting, I'm sure, to you all. But, uh, but it's not, we don't really care normally when we're talking to each other what the meaning of our name is. I mean, if you, you will say that's nice if you tell each other, but we're not that worried about it. But in, in the Bible, you'll find often the names have deep meaning that matter deeply. It's, it's more than just a, a word that we use to describe someone. There's an identity rooted in that name. And in this passage in Exodus, when the Lord says, I'm going to tell you my name, he's not just saying my name's the Lord. He's going to tell you who he is. And remember, the book of Exodus is leading to this point of where the people are understanding this great and powerful God who is leading them to salvation, who he is. And today we're going to look at the name of the Lord. If you look in Exodus 34, verses 5 through 8, I'm going to read it now, and this is the core passage we're going to look into. Exodus 34, 5, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And we're going to pause right now and pray ourselves. Lord, I thank you for this great book of Exodus and this great passage in the heart of it, talking about who you are, your holy name. I pray as we dig in and look at this today that you would touch our hearts today, that you would encourage us to worship you, encourage us to follow you, to trust in you because of your greatness, because of who you are. Thank you, O oh Lord. I pray for each one today, the one who's here, perhaps one who's come with a friend or who is come and isn't sure what they're looking for today. I pray that they will find more than they imagined in your great name. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's take a look at this passage. There's seven characteristics 
that the Lord tells to Moses when he declares his name that I want us to look at today that are defining characteristics of who God is. The first one is this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful. Isn't it fascinating that God starts out when he's declaring who he is and starts out and says, I am a merciful God. My name is mercy. My name is merciful. This means that God is compassionate, providing care and protection for that which is helpless and dependent. Uh, that, that's a, a beautiful picture of a God when he sees people who are in need, who have trouble, who are, who are down. His default position is mercy. It's not that he has some good days and occasionally he's nice to us. This is who he is every day all the time. He is a merciful God when he sees those in need. He reaches out to them with a heart of mercy and compassion. Secondly, the Lord is a God merciful and a Lord who is gracious. Grace is a beautiful thing. It's when we get what we don't deserve or when we don't get what we do deserve. The Newsboys actually had a song that started out that way years ago. When we get what we don't deserve, it's a real good thing. Mercy or Grace is undeserved favor. It's when God, again, gives us things we don't deserve. When we don't get the judgment we do deserve. That is God's default position that he offers grace towards us. We live in an age of grace even now where salvation is offered to all who will receive it. And I am so thankful that God, in describing who he is, starts off with mercy and with grace. That compassion and then that generous, generous gift of saying, I'm offering my love, my salvation freely to you. That's who the Lord is. He's merciful. He's gracious. And then thirdly, he's slow to anger. In, uh, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in the Old King James, I'm trying to say, there was a word they used. Do you know what the word was for slow to anger? Long-suffering. If you have kids long enough, you know what that word uh, <laughs> might mean. And, uh, but the Lord has kids too. <laughs> and he is slow to anger. He's long-suffering. That means he's patient with us. He's a patient God. And I am so thankful that God is patient with me. I know I am not patient enough with people. <laughs> but God is patient and we see, sometimes when we read the Bible, we think, boy, God, he judged those people. That was rough. But sometimes we forget that he spent 300 years telling them to repent and sending them prophets. And do... If you read the Bible over and over again, you find that God spends days, months, years, decades, centuries calling on people to turn back to him. And we often read those moments of judgment without thinking about how patient he was before that judgment came. He's a God who's slow to anger. He's a God who abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness or loving kindness and truth. These words, the, the word love is talking about this loyal, reliable, unfailing covenant love has said in the Hebrew. It's not the kind of love we hear about on the radio. Can you imagine that? Uh, it's not a love that's here today, gone tomorrow, and is up and down like a sine wave for you science people. It's, uh, it, it, it's a love that continues, is steady, and goes on even when we are not so great. He continues faithfully in his love. He abounds in that kind of love. He abounds in faithfulness as well. Uh, 
The emphasis in this word faithfulness is on truth, especially. He's a God of truth, of righteousness, but we can count on what he says to be true and reliable. He abounds in truth and his faithfulness. It says he keep, is keeping steadfast love to thousands is the next characteristic. This thousands is not simply thousands of people. It's actually referring to time, to thousands of generations going on and on and on eternally. Talks about how God is then forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Do you see this beautiful progression of who God is? A God who forgives our sin. The great need of the world is not what we read in the papers or on the news. The great need of the world is the forgiveness of sin to be made right with God. And we worship a God who in his very name defines himself as one who forgives sin. That's an incredible truth. But then we come to the seventh characteristic of God. And there's, it's almost a bit jarring when you read it after having read those first six. It says, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And you read it and you say, whoa, that, well, that sounds like bad news. Uh, grace, mercy, check, check. Uh, love, abounding, great. Judgment, uh-oh. <laughs> and, and it's almost a bit jarring. We read these first six and we say, those are things that I'm excited about. But this last one, no means clearing the guilty, that sounds like trouble. That sounds like judgment. And it's almost like there's a tension. How can God be, you know, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, all these good things, and then have this, this almost this heart, it sounds like a hard edge side. Like, how does that work? <coughs> Hold that thought. I'm glad you asked. We're going to address it as the message goes on. But what I want to point out in this passage is it goes on to say, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, the third and fourth generation. It's not the main point of the message, but I don't want to skip over that part because you might read that and say, well, that doesn't sound like the gospel. That sounds like me getting punished for what my grandfather did. <laughs> Let me explain this in this passage. There's a couple things to note. One is that in ancient Israel, uh, they lived in families collectively together in ways that we, some, some people still do it today, but not often we live all separate. Our parents and grandparents are all scattered all around. They're, they're living where the children and the great-grandparent might be living in the same household. And so if the great-grandparent is sinning, it's being watched by the great-grandson. You follow me? And so this passage was speaking, I think in part it speaks to this reality that sin was directly impacting the generations as they lived together. I also want to point out that if we think about it, sin actually does have generational impact. Uh, there's a saying we have, uh, like father, like son. And it's something that we all recognize. We could say like mother, like daughter as well. There's times we grew up and we say, I'm not going to be like my dad in that way. Or, I'm not going to be like my mom in that way. And 10 years later, you're going, oh, oh, I'm doing just what my dad used to do. Or I'm doing just what my mom used to do. And we say, how is that? How does that happen? I think there's a reality that sin is passed to us. It's amazing how much we reflect our parents for better and for worse. But there's hope in all this because it doesn't have to stay that way. The power and grace of God can work in us to work in our parents, to work in us, and for us to stop that chain by the power of God, to recognize it, confess it, and ask God's help to overcome it. And he has the power to do that in our lives. 
These seven characteristics are the name of the Lord. And what I want to point out to you, I want to open something up to you that if you haven't seen before, it actually opens up the scripture as you read it. Because this name of the Lord, these key characteristics come up over and over and over and over again in the Bible. And when you're reading the Bible, especially the Psalms, but other places too, you'll see it again and again. I appreciate it, Angela, you chose songs today, or you and the team chose songs that reflected some of these phrases from this passage about the name of the Lord. Take a look at just a few examples. We're going to look at some examples. Psalm 51.1, we sang this just earlier, a few minutes ago. This is David singing a prayer of repentance after he had sinned terribly against the Lord with Bathsheba and against her husband. He prayed, saying, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Do you see what David is doing there in his prayer? He's calling on the name of the Lord. He's appealing to God's steadfast love, his mercy, uh, to his forgiveness. David's prayer isn't just random nice words. He's looking straight back to Exodus and saying, I'm calling on the name of the Lord. I'm, I'm, I'm throwing myself on the name of the Lord because that's all I got right now. I have messed up badly. That's his prayer. We look in the book of Lamentations, written by Jeremiah, known as the weeping prophet. The book of Lamentations is a lament. It's a sad book. These are about the only happy verses in the book, if you read it. And it says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Remember, the people are being taken away into exile. His nation is in the midst of being destroyed when he writes this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying the, the only hope we have is the name of the Lord. That God will remain true to his character. That last line, great is thy faithfulness, is you've probably, most of you sang the hymn, great is thy faithfulness. One of the great hymns of the last century and I believe one of the reasons it's so powerfully impacted so many people is because it praises the character of who God is. Look in the book of Jonah. This is a, Jonah's a fun book. It's a fun book, a little book. Four verses, there's a whale involved. It's quite exciting. Uh, Jonah is told to go preach in Nineveh, and no, he goes the other way. He goes straight the other way. He doesn't want to preach there. And uh, God makes sure he gets there eventually. He preaches, and the people repent. And then in chapter 4, it's a great story. I told it really quickly, but it's a great story. It's better than the way I just told it. And uh, at the end, though, a part that we often skip is Jonah's kind of explaining why he ran away. He says, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. He went to a place called Tarshish, or he tried to go there. That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew, speaking to God, he says, I knew you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Does that sound familiar based on our message today? Do you think Jonah was quoting a certain passage? <laughs> of course he was. And Jonah, it's a very funny thing that he's doing. He's saying, I went the other way because, uh, God, I knew that if I went and preached to those terrible people that I hate in Nineveh, that you would, you would relent. You would show mercy on them. You would forgive them. It's so funny. He had so much faith in God's name that he disobeyed and ran the other way. 
you follow me? It's crazy what, what his, his reasoning. But it's fascinating that even in his sin, he knew that God was going to relent. Even if he didn't, he, he wanted those people to burn. That's what he wanted. And he knew God wouldn't let that happen. <laughs> then we come to the New Testament. One more passage that gives an example. It says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When we come to the New Testament, the name of the Lord is on full display in Jesus Christ. And what we find is the name revealed in the Old Testament is the same name in the New Testament in God the Son, Jesus Christ. They would say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's a God who is merciful. Jesus showed compassion for the multitudes, seeing them you know, helpless there like sheep without a shepherd. God shows mercy to us through the cross of Jesus Christ. We see the grace of God, God freely offering salvation to all who will trust in Jesus. It's a free gift by grace we are saved through faith. We see that God is slow to anger. There's a passage in 2 Peter where God tells us he's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That God, we're in this age of grace that we're even in now 2,000 years after Christ died and rose again where God has the doors open saying, come, whosoever will, come. He's calling people to himself because he's slow to anger. He's patient. That time will not last forever. We often wonder if those days are sooner than later that it's going to come to an end. But whenever that time is when the Lord returns, in the meantime, we're in the age of grace where God's patience with us is here and we need to turn now. He abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. One of the most famous verses in the Bible is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Talking about God's love for us seen in Jesus Christ. We also see in this steadfast love and faithfulness part of the name of the Lord. Remember I mentioned it talks about his love and faithfulness refers to his truth. In many, and Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth revealed in him. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. His love goes on and on and on. There's this sign on the highway on the 407 in Toronto, and it's, it's, a, uh, it's a cemetery, actually, I believe, is what it's advertising. But it says, and to your left, eternity. <laughs> and it's jarring. It's just in this empty field. <laughs> and you drive out, oh, that's, wow, yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> eternity. The Lord's love actually started before the foundations of the world. That's, and goes on forever. That's the kind of love he has. Forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, God forgives us through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for all who will put their trust in him. And then it says, but will, who, will by no means clear the guilty. Remember, we had a little question about that. How can God be this loving, merciful, gracious, forgiving God and a God of justice who judges the guilty? Well, the answer comes in full display. John Piper described it, the blazing center of the glory of God. When Jesus Christ hangs on the cross, dying for our sins, the wrath of God is being poured out on him, being punished for sin. Well, the love of God is on full display as we are being saved and forgiven through that work on the cross. That's the answer to the question. The cross is where God's love 
mercy, forgiveness, justice all come together in the blazing center of the glory of God. I want to tell you something more. This sermon, a Trinity sermon, you might catch that. Father, Son, and Spirit. It says in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is given to believers to empower us to live the Christian life. Jesus said, it's better that I go away. He said this to the disciples. I would have argued if I was there. I would have said, no, it's better that you stay forever because <laughs> I would have been, thought I was smart and said something like that. And he says, no, it's better that I go away. Because, and the reason he gave is because I'm going to send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. Jesus was voluntarily put on these limitations of human flesh. The Spirit has, does not have that and can be everywhere all at once in the lives of believers. And the believer reproduces the life of Christ within us. Because we read about these characteristics of the name of the Lord, and one thing that stands out is that I'm not enough of any of these. <laughs> and that might be you too. In fact, it's all of us. Now, the way of religion is to try and work really hard to be those things. Maybe if you work really hard, you'll be merciful and gracious and all that. Well, if you've tried that, you know it doesn't work. The way we become like God is not by trying really hard, but by trusting and yielding to his spirit, who produces mercy within us, so we actually want to show mercy to those in need who produces grace in us. So instead of giving people a hard time when they wrong us and being all judgmental on them, we want to show grace towards them. Instead of being impatient, he produces a patience in us that is, is beyond our capacity, that is supernatural. He produces a love and faithfulness and truth in us that is a deep love that, again, is beyond the love on the radio and in our modern media, but is one that goes on and on and is deep because of not our strength. It goes beyond our strength because that's what the Spirit does. He keeps steadfast love for thousands. That love goes on and on. It's not up and down. It allows us to be a people who forgive one another and forgive others when we're wronged. And it allows us to be a people who by no means clear the guilty, meaning we care about justice in this world. And we seek with all the grace and love of God to right wrongs and be a people who stand up for those who can't. This sermon is leading to the main point, which is just this. When you know what God is really like, it makes you want to follow him. When you know what God is really like, it makes you want to follow him. I, I am convinced that many people in this world, have, they have no idea what God is like. And what they think God is like is very different from what he is like, and they don't think there's a way to even know. But when people see the name of the Lord, the full beauty and glory of God on full display, this is beautiful. This, this is the longing of our hearts. The God who created us created us for him, created us to worship him. And when we see him in his true glory and beauty, we want to follow that. We want to trust to receive his salvation in Jesus Christ. Perhaps you're here today, and that's describing you. You've never quite seen what God is like, and you see it now, and you're saying, that's, that's worth following. And that's the Lord pulling on your heart. And I encourage you, respond to the Lord today. Trust in him today and begin this walk. You've got a beautiful church here who can join you and help you in that.
Maybe you've known the Lord a long time, but you've seen things you've never seen before in the Scripture today or be reminded of things that have just drawn you to the Lord. The response to this message is worship. The response is worship. And we just close in prayer now and say, Oh God, we worship you and praise you for who you are. We thank you for your great and wonderful name. And as we sing about it now, move our hearts and strengthen us as we go out, that we may live out your name by your spirit within us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.